The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. My name is Jeremy. For those of you who may be new or don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and and, uh, it's such an honor to be spending some time with you in Mark chapter 14. This is probably one of my favorite... uh, moments in the Bible that is recorded in the history of the scriptures for us. Uh, So it's such a fantastic uh, moment in the scriptures. The the fear is is that I could muck it up by not giving it it the weight that it is due. And so uh, to the best of my ability, I'm going to try and just, let's just step into the story. Let's feel its reality. And let's think about the implications. I've titled my message today, The Extravagant Value of Jesus. The Extravagant Value of Jesus. Now, we have been traveling through the Gospel of Mark and are now in the final week before the crucifixion. And up to this point, the focus of Mark has been on the action and the teaching of Jesus who is presented and framed in the the good news of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news, that he is the messianic king that God has always promised would come. And so far, we have seen the majesty of the Messiah reflected in his wisdom, in teaching, in his zeal for God, in his compassion for the poor, and his heart for the suffering. We see him entering into those situations in life and displaying for us his heart motivation in each of those situations. It's, just, it's been wonderful to see. And the last chapter that we were just in uh, dealt with the final return of Jesus and the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, which is essentially the closing of the Old Covenant. That's why that's such an important piece when we, when we mark the, the, the destruction of, of the temple in Israel. That's essentially the closing of the Old Covenant. That's a powerful moment for us to think about. And so uh, we, we, have, we were looking at that this last week, and it served as a warning, the teaching of Jesus on the Olivet Discourse, Uh, to the Christians in Jerusalem to flee when they saw certain signs and the city of Jerusalem was surrounded. In addition to that, Jesus is also teaching about the second coming, and he's telling his disciples uh, that he is coming back again. Uh, And it it ends, chapter uh, chapter 13, ends on a rather high note. In verse 26... Jesus tells the disciples that the entire world will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. I mean, that, that, that's a glorious end. Here comes Jesus. The whole world sees him. He comes with power and great glory. It's, it's a very triumphant entry, or ending to that chapter. But now Mark is beginning to move to the great plot twist of Jesus' life as king, as Messiah. 
He's beginning to give us the information that we need to know. How is it that he, be, he was so popular and so wonderful and, and, and so many people were affected and changed? How did he end up being crucified on a Roman cross? This doesn't make sense. How did this happen? And so 14 is going to give us some of the clues for what took place. Now the chapter we're looking at today is structured in Mark's typical style. Uh, some Bible commentators like to use the phrase a Markin sandwich because the, the writer uh, of the Gospel of Mark uh, would oftentimes take a truth and insert a story into the middle of a story to illustrate something that he wanted us to understand. He was highlighting a truth that he wants us to grab a hold of from the event. It's a, it's a literary style. And in this case, while Mark is telling us uh, and detailing for us how the chief priests and the scribes are looking for an occasion to, to kill Jesus and how Judas betrayed Jesus, he inserts the story of a woman that comes in, breaks an alabaster vial of ointment, and pours it upon the head. Of Jesus. And the insertion of this story, which actually didn't take place at that same time two days before, it took place six days before the Passover, according to John's Gospel. He inserts that story so that we can contrast those that value Jesus and those that don't. Those that see him as he is and those that don't. He wants us to see the difference between Judas, who sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and Mary, who spared no expense to show Jesus how much she treasured him. So this will set up the framework for our time today in the Scriptures. Our outline is pretty simple. It follows the flow of the text. And it goes like this, the extravagant value of Jesus, verses 1 to 2, seeing Jesus as a threat, seeing Jesus as a threat. Verses 3 to 9, seeing Jesus as worthy. And verses 10 to 11, seeing Jesus as a means. So seeing Jesus as a threat seeing Jesus as worthy, and seeing Jesus as a means. So let's read the passage. We'll work our way through it, beginning chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar, from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now verse 1 gives us the time frame of the betrayal of Judas. It is two days before Passover. Now Passover for the Israelites is comparable to the 4th of July for us. It was Liberation Day. It was, it was a celebration of God freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And here Mark lays out the fact that this betrayal took place two days before the Passover meal, which took place, the meal was eaten on the 15th of Nisan, and, and the lamb was killed on the 14th of Nisan. Now remember, for Israelites, a day starts as the sun goes down. That's the beginning of the day when the sun goes down. So basically in the same day, the lamb is killed, and then as, after the sun goes down, which starts the new day, they have the meal fresh after the killing of the lamb, the Passover lamb. Now the chief priests are the rulers of the temple, and they're likely comprised of, uh, the, of a majority of the Sanhedrin rulers. So these chief priests that are gathered uh, here in this, in this looking for this opportunity to betray Jesus are a part of the Sanhedrin. Probably not all of them, but a good chunk of them. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men plus the high priest. The high priest made 71 that were rulers of uh, the temple. And joining them are the scribes and and the elders who were experts on the law. So you have this mishmash of people. You have rulers in the temple, members of the Sanhedrin. You have respected elders and teachers. And you have scribes who are experts in the law. They've all convened together. And we know from Matthew 26 that the gathering where this conspiracy took place is in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Now think about this for a minute. For the reader in Jerusalem or, or in Israel at that time, this would have been scandalous. Wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. I mean, the high priest and all the rulers of the temple, the most respected religious men in all of Israel, gathered together in the palace, in the home of the high priest, and they sought, they conspired together to try and kill an innocent man. I mean, it's, it's scandalous. What's the content of this meeting? They're plotting for how they can kill Jesus. The, the, the equivalent of this would be if, the, if a, a pastor of a church had an elders meeting, gathered his elders, 
some chief deacons, gathered them all together at his house and said, hey, there's somebody in the church. I really don't like them. I'd like to kill them. How do you think we could do that? It's insane that this is happening. Here, these men of God are conspiring to kill Jesus. Matter of fact, we know from Matthew 26 and also John 11, verse 50, that it is Caiaphas that is leading the discussion on this. The high priest of the land is leading the discussion. This is meant to be shocking to us. This is supposed to be the holiest of weeks for the holiest of people with the holiest of holy leaders doing the will of God. And what are they doing? They're gathering together to try and kill Jesus. What's happening among the priesthood, the people who are there to pronounce forgiveness of sins? They're sinning in a very grotesque way. Now, notice their chief concern, which is found in verse 2. Their biggest fear is not that they are sinning against God by plotting to kill an innocent man, but that they don't want to create an uproar among the people because Jesus is still very popular with many of the people. What's, what's their big concern? Not like, God, I'm sorry, I'm having murderous thoughts. This is a bad thing. Their chief concern is like, well, we don't want to upset people. Very politically motivated, right? Is God's word going to upset people? Do you think following God is going to upset people? Most definitely. It upsets me half the time. Right? That's, that's the reality of it. It runs contrary to my flesh, of course. Honoring God and bringing glory to him is going to upset people. But these leaders are concerned about the politics of a religious environment. Not only that, but Passover tended to be a very nationalistic time that was marked oftentimes by riots in the history of Israel. And the Roman garrison there was not a huge army that was stationed in Jerusalem. And so that is why uh, Herod would be pulled down with his military forces during Passover, and, and, and both Pontius Pilate and Herod would be in Jerusalem for Passover. They needed the extra military force. And so this creates this potentially volatile situation with all this military presence and the possibility of Jesus being proclaimed as king and his popularity with the people. And, and what if the, the, the leaders arrest Jesus and there's a riot and then the Romans have to come? It's a very complex situation. What's the motivation to kill Jesus? Well, they are concerned about the way, what they will lose if Jesus rises to power in the city. If he becomes the king of Israel, there are multiple practical consequences that will happen as a result. One, this puts them in direct conflict with Rome, which is the greatest world power at the time. So if another person is claiming to be king and, and, and the people follow with him, then what will happen is the Romans will come in to try and crush that because it's a competitive king with Rome, and that causes a problem for them. That, that ruins their way of life. 
but also they will likely not be treated kindly by Jesus if he does come to power, if he does end up king, because he has often withstood them. In his teaching, he's rebuked them. He's constantly called out the hypocrisy of the religious parties in Israel. He cleansed the temple on at least two separate occasions and accused them of ripping people off because, well, they were ripping people off. He gave teachings that directly contradicted the traditions of the religious system that they were a part of, the religious system that had supplied them with their power and their position. At the end of the day, if Jesus is king, they are out of a job, and they lose the things that they treasure most in this world. For this group of people, Jesus is a very real threat to their kingdom. His kingdom and theirs cannot coexist. They're in opposition to each other. So, this group sees Jesus as a threat. Now, at the end, we'll look at Judas, who sees Jesus as a means to an end. But inserted into that is the story of Mary, who sees Jesus as worthy. In verses 3 through 9, we get the details. It's at this point that Mark inserts the story of this event that occurred the previous week. While Jesus is in Bethany, John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that this took place the previous Friday, six days before Passover. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, and a likely conclusion for us to make as a result of that is that this fellow Simon uh, was a leper that Jesus healed because if he was still leprous, obviously he wouldn't be eating with the group. So this is probably somebody that Jesus delivered. He would have been ostracized otherwise. And then it goes on to say, and while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now this event could easily be confused with a very similar event that took place in Luke 7. However, the, the people in Luke 7 are different. The place and timing are different. The motivation for coming to Jesus is different. And the woman in Luke 7 came out of gratefulness for being forgiven. The woman here comes out of just simple affection for Jesus. Again, it's John's gospel that sheds light on the identity of who this woman is who came into the room and broke this alabaster flask. It was Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Perhaps you'll remember her. Lazarus being the one that Jesus raised from the dead. She's the one who came in and anointed Jesus. Now this makes sense because Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So it makes sense that she would be gathered where Jesus is gathered. What's interesting, though, is that Mary's heart for Jesus is often displayed in an affectionate way throughout the Gospels. Remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, it was, it was Mary 
who was sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha, her sister, was serving in the kitchen. And Martha was frustrated by this. She's like, hey, you know, I'm in here doing all the work, and she's just sitting there at the feet of Jesus, listening to him talk. Jesus, tell, tell my sister, get in here. Help me out a little bit. Remember Jesus' response to Martha. Martha, you're concerned with so many things. Mary has chosen the better thing, and it won't be taken away from her. Mary, she just, she loved to be at the feet of Jesus. Or maybe you remember in John chapter 11, after their brother Lazarus has died, Mary runs to Jesus in anguish, in, in grief. She, she falls at his feet, and then she cries out to him. Once again, here she is at the feet of Jesus, this time with a broken heart. And she's pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. She says to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Then we see, of course, Jesus' heart for her because the Scriptures tell us when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he wept in response. Her pouring out her heart to Jesus at his feet in a moment of grief and brokenness was beautiful to him. His heart was moved. He wept. Mary had a deep love for Jesus that only continued to increase over time. Her, her affection for Jesus personally was so deep, in fact, that she didn't seem to care what others thought. Her sister thought she was being lazy, getting out of work. But Jesus thought what she did was beautiful. At the tomb of her brother, she cast herself at the feet of Jesus, wailing in grief. She didn't care what others thought. And here in this passage, once more, she's unabashed in her love for Jesus. This week during sermon prep, Kathy shared... uh, with us about the scandal of a woman coming in and interrupting men who are sitting at the table dining together in this moment. Now, you add to that, you know, like not only is she being unabashed, unashamed of her love for Jesus, she comes in, she interrupts this meeting with Jesus and all the men, right? And, and, and this isn't even her house, It's somebody else's house. But she's walking around like she owns the place. She charges right in, sees Jesus, ignores everybody else, has her alabaster vial of ointment, and breaks it open and pours it out upon his head. She didn't care what others thought. She is unabashed in her love for Jesus. She's unashamed. Her whole focus is not the other people in the room. She wants Jesus to know how much she loves him. 
She doesn't care what anybody else thinks of her. She cares what Jesus thinks of her in that moment. Now let's take a moment then to put ourselves in the scene that's being described here. Imagine that you're at someone's house having dinner with Pastor Paul. In walks a woman who's connected to the church. She's a guest at the house. It's not her place. She doesn't live there. But she walks in as though it's her own, and she walks right up to Pastor Paul with a very expensive bottle of perfume. She walks right up to him, makes eye contact with Paul, busts the top off the bottle rather than spritz, spritz. And she proceeds to pour the entire contents upon his head. Then as the entire bottle flows down his head and drips to his feet, she kneels to the floor, lets down her hair, and uses her hair to wipe the ointment on Pastor Paul's feet. Anybody feeling uncomfortable at this moment? <laughs> That's Paul. See, this is all kinds of scandalous. She's being brazen in this. You know, in a situation with Paul, the major difference in the outcomes of the story is that you would see Becky, Paul's wife, reach for a knife on the table. <laughs> Listen, what was driving the heart of Mary? What was her motivation to express her affection for Jesus in this way? Perhaps it was a love for Jesus that grew rather suddenly. It could have been maybe an expression of the overwhelming appreciation that she had for him, Jesus raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. Or, or maybe she, she felt deep love and affection for Jesus when, when she heard Jesus say to her sister at his tomb, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? It could have been in that moment when she saw Jesus pray to the Father and say, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of those who are standing here, that they might know, that they might believe. And then he called to her brother who had been dead for four days and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man stood up and came walking out. Maybe that was the moment that Mary thought, man, I love this guy. Nobody else could do that. Or maybe her love for Jesus grew a little bit more slowly. All those times of sitting at his feet, listening to the teaching of Jesus while she listened to his wisdom and and grew to understand his heart slowly over time. Her affection for Jesus grew. We don't know how it got there, but we do know this. Her expression of love towards Jesus is an extravagant expression 
of love. Not everyone is going to understand it. Not everybody will appreciate it. But Jesus will, and that's the only thing that matters to her. His opinion is the only one that matters anyway. The reason she's loving him is not for others. It's for Jesus. That he might know how treasured he is to her. So the passage continues, for there were some, verse 4, who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Again, it's John's gospel that tells us that there was a ringleader in this conversation. The ringleader was Judas. Judas was the one who spoke up and asked the question, made the accusations, and then John lets us know the reason why. It tells, he tells us that, that Judas was the treasurer who held the money purse for the disciples, and he used to steal money out of it. He didn't actually have any care for the poor. He was concerned about lining his own pockets. Unfortunately, the, the disciples got swept up in his argument. It sounded noble. Oh, well, yeah, we could have taken care of the poor. And Mary, why'd you do that? And they get in on it too, and they, they begin to scold her. You see, the reason for that was that the gift was insane. The, the cost of the flask of, the, of pure nard was worth 300 denarii. That, that is the equivalent of one full years worth of labor. This means that this gift was likely a, a family heirloom or possibly even Mary's dowry dowry being the security that she would have if she had ever gotten married and her husband died she could fall back on that financially sell it and carry herself into the next season of life now given that it was uncommon for women to have this kind of wealth it is unlikely that she was able to come up with that on her own and it was unlikely after giving it away that she would ever gain it back again Her sacrifice is great. I love what Spurgeon said in response to this verse. He said, I shall always feel obliged to Judas for figuring up the price of that box of costly nard. Now, he did it to blame her, but we will let his figure stand and think the more of her, the more he put down to the account of waste. I should never have known what it costs, nor would you either if Judas had not marked it down in his pocketbook. Now, to help us understand what this actually looks like, I did a little bit of work this, this week. Uh, I got on the Google, which is where all true deep research happens. Whenever somebody says, I, I've been researching this, that means they Googled it. I got on the Google and I said, okay, what is the, the median average income for people living in the state of Oregon? Household income for the state of Oregon. So the household income on average for the state of Oregon 
from Census Bureau data taken in 2020 is about $65,667 per year. So about $65,000 per year. So then I thought to myself, well, what is a good comparison then for you know, a year's wages, a year's salary. And so I got on, I started Googling, you know, perfumes, like expensive perfumes. Turns out Chanel number no. five grand extrait parfum <laughs> costs $4,200 per ounce. Okay? So 16 ounces of Chanel number no. 5 Grand Extrait equals $67,200, about a year's salary if you're living in the state of Oregon. So here's what I did. I approached the elders. I said, I really want to bring home this truth of the, the value of Jesus. And so... I got on Chanel's website, and I couldn't afford the full $67,000 uh, thing to put on the, the, the credit card. I couldn't get 16 ounces, but I did manage to get a 10-ounce bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. Okay, this cost about $25,000, $30,000. And so, uh, as a demonstration for the glory of God, what I've decided to do is recreate this moment with Mary. Here we go. It's about half the value of a year's salary. Let's take the packaging out here. God, you're worthy. That's about a thousand dollars. You're so worthy. There's about $8,000. You're worthy of it all. I just, I just want you to be glorified in this offering. Nobody else gets this but you. You're the only one who's ever going to have this right here. Lord, this is for you. So we're at the halfway point right now, so we're about $15,000. God be glorified. Lord, don't let the elders kill me. <laughs> God, be honored. We're at like $20,000 right now. You're worthy of it all. Every last drop, God, you are worthy. There's $30,000. That is half of the cost of what Mary did. You see that? 
This is an insane gift. Now, I want to ask you a question. At what point did you want me to stop? Is it like $1,000? Okay. (laughs) Jesus is worthy. We all know. Don't waste the church's money. Was it at $10,000? Was it at 15? For I had the whole bottle and I could dump it all out, $67,000 worth. Which, by the way, you should never trust a guy who was raised in youth ministry with a church credit card. He will (laughs) spare no expense to make sure that God is glorified. What was the pinch point for you? What was the cost? where he said, this is wasteful. We could do so many other things with that money. How does this glorify God? You're just pouring it out. It's going on the floor. It's in a box. It's being wasted. How is this responsible? It is not a practical gift. It is a gift of pure devotion and affection. Why would you have wanted me to stop? Does it seem like a waste to you? I know I wrestle with it. You see, at the bottom of that barrel of questions is the ultimate question, what is the worth of Jesus? What is the worth of Jesus? Now, now, maybe we can understand a little bit why the disciples are wrestling. We can understand the conflict that this created for them. That is a lot of money. You're just dumping it out. It makes no sense. It's not practical. The kind of extravagance doesn't make sense at all. But the real question, the question that Mary is most concerned about, is what does Jesus think of the gift? Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus said, His thoughts about Mary's act. It's beautiful. Full stop. Think about that. It was beautiful that Mary wasted her security on Jesus. It was beautiful that she wasted the whole bottle on Jesus. She, she could have just poured out a few drops or, or even just a portion, but she busted the top off that bottle and she emptied its entire contents onto Jesus. It was beautiful that she held nothing back from him but, but poured it out to the uttermost, saying to him, Jesus, you're worthy of it all. You can have it all. It was beautiful that she saw Jesus as so worthy that the cost of the offering didn't even matter to her. 
It was beautiful that she stopped caring about reputation and only cared what Jesus knew about the deepest part of her heart towards him. It was beautiful that Mary loved Jesus more than her reputation. It was beautiful that she came in faith. She made herself vulnerable to Jesus, let down her hair, wiped the fragrance over his feet with her hair in full assurance, believing he would not brush her off, push her away, that he would receive her act of affection and love. He would not recoil. She knew his heart. She came in faith. See, to those that stood by, it was a waste. But to Jesus, it was beautiful. Reminds me of the parable that Jesus taught of the hidden treasure in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The, the whole parable is just one verse. He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's when a man found it and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys this field. There's a guy, he's out in a field, and he's just dinking around in the field, or maybe he's plowing in the field, and all of a sudden, bink, up comes a treasure. This is, this is the best treasure I've ever found. And so he covers it up, and he goes and he sells his house, his donkey, he sells every possession that he has and he comes and he purchases the field that the treasure is in so that the treasure can be his forever. That's Mary. Jesus is her treasure. His kingdom is her treasure. She's all in. It was beautiful that Mary had discovered that Jesus is eternity's greatest treasure and is willing to give it all up for him. Notice verse 7, Jesus says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus defends Mary and rebukes the disciples, telling them, that the poor will always be there and that there will always be an opportunity to express love and care and do good for the poor. And now Jesus is not diminishing care for the poor, but he's highlighting the fact that, this, that his physical time on earth is coming to a close. Part of what made this moment special was that he knew he was going to the cross. He knew that he'd be ascending to the right hand of the Father, that he would not be physically present any longer to receive this kind of affection. He knew that the time was short, and Mary is doing what she can while she can. In fact, Jesus says that she has anointed his body beforehand for burial. Though Mary might not have realized it in the moment that that was the purpose, Jesus receives her worship as being preparation for his death. Think about that. Think about the weight of those words. Remember, the disciples are still behaving as if 
what Jesus has said about going to the cross, about being betrayed, about being crucified is not going to happen. In contrast, Mary is doing for Jesus what there will be no time to do later. Remember, Jesus was crucified. It was getting close to the evening. As soon as the evening came, as soon as the sun went down, it would be a Sabbath. They weren't allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. So they basically had to pull him from the cross, stuff him in a borrowed man's tomb, and they weren't able to express care and love for his body or reverence for his body before they put him in the tomb. They had to come back on Sunday to do that. Mary is doing for Jesus what there will be no time to do later. Interesting, when they come back on Sunday to anoint the body, there's a, a couple of Marys there, but one that isn't. Guess who's not there at the resurrection? Mary of Bethany. Mary Magdalene is there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary of Bethany is not among them. Why? She had already anointed Jesus. She didn't need to come. Jesus said so. Now, this brings up an important application for us to consider this morning. The word worship is actually two words that are contracted, worth and ship. It was a way of expressing the worth that is due to the one who it's due, to the one who is worthy. And, and we all have an opportunity to do what we can while we can. Whether our lives are cut off by, the, 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 by death or by the return of Jesus, we, we, each of us, only have one life to offer to God. That's it. We can only do what we can while we can if you have a chance to show Jesus his, his worth in life, act now, today, while you can. Micro acts of obedience and surrender and value and big acts of obedience and surrender and value, a lifestyle of demonstrating the worthiness of Christ until we're dead, or Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first. Don't wait till it's too late. Listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and do it. And what would that look like? It might look like a moment where you forget who may be watching in a worship service during musical worship. And you lift your hands and surrender to God, simply overwhelmed at how good he is. Wanting him to know how much you love him. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. It could be that. Or it could be like the moment where you know it will be relationally costly to share the gospel with a friend or a neighbor. But instead, you stop caring what other people think and you start caring about what Jesus thinks. And you go, Jesus, you are worthy. You know, throughout the scriptures, we see people expressing the worth of God, the worth of Christ in a variety of ways, so many different ways. Right at the very beginning in, in Genesis, Abel gave of the firstborn of his flock. Noah built a giant boat when it hadn't even rained. There was no water around it. 
Abraham took a hike with his son to offer sacrifice to God. Jacob poured oil on a rock and named the place Bethel in honor of God. Moses got involved in social justice and stood up to Pharaoh as a defense to the enslaved Hebrews. Miriam wrote music along with all of the psalmists throughout the scriptures. Two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, used their craftsmanship as artists to create art in the tabernacle for the glory of God. And they also used their skills to teach others how to glorify God through art. The priests played instruments and tended altars and swept the house of God. Israel stacked stones in the middle of the river to mark God's promises. Hannah raised Samuel with the intention of offering him to God that his life might be to the praise of God's glory. David played music and, and danced in his fruit of the looms, danced in his underwear. Now for those of you guys out there that might think that that's too effeminate and maybe too much of a display of emotion, for the modern man, I would just remind you that David also killed a lion and a bear and a giant with nothing but a slingshot. He was a man's man. But God mattered more. Zacchaeus threw a party and invited his friends and paid back those he had defrauded sevenfold. The early church sold their property and gave it to the poor and shared their possessions and their food. Jesus and Paul offered the prospect of marriage to God and lived as single to the glory of God, wholly devoted to him. You know, the same thing still happens presently. In the present day, lawyers do pro bono work for the glory of God. Craftsmen build houses and care centers and hospitals. Families take in orphans. Artists create art. Missionaries sell all that they have and move across the world. People serve in their local church, in their communities. Farmers give their food. Mothers raise their babies, all because Jesus is worthy of it. All because of the surpassing worth of Jesus with the heart of worship, they say to him, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. I don't care what it costs me. You're worth it. Their offering to Jesus is not calculated in terms of cost. It is calculated by his worth. Private worship, our offering to God, our offering to Jesus, is a reflection of the value that we place upon him. Think about it this way, like a marriage. What if the only time I ever showed any affection or approval or care for my wife was when others were watching? What would that say about the health of my marriage or her value in my eyes? This is the beauty of living a life of worship. There will be thousands of times nobody will ever know, and you just say, Jesus, you are worthy. I don't care what anybody else thinks about this. You are worthy of this, and I'm most concerned about your heart. 
This is all because of the surpassing worth of Jesus. Throughout the ages, the saints have found the joy of giving to God simply for his delight. Jesus goes on to say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Of course, this is being fulfilled right now in the sanctuary as we work our way through this passage. But I think there might be something a little more that Jesus is hinting at here. It isn't just an act that it isn't just the act of her pouring out this ointment that makes it a famous moment. It is the heart of Mary in loving Jesus and valuing him this much. It is the heart of Jesus in loving Jesus above all else. When the gospel is preached and people are invited to respond, We're inviting them to respond like Mary responded. We're saying to them, listen, put your faith in Jesus. Come to him. Give your whole self to him. He won't reject you. He won't cast you out. We're saying to them, he will receive you. Give your whole life to him, not just part. Pour your whole life out because he's worthy of that. Give him all of who you are. Hold nothing back because he is worth it. Worship him with your whole heart. Forget what others will say. Give yourself to him. When we proclaim the gospel, we are calling people to a life of worship just like Mary. To valuing Jesus the same way that Mary has valued Jesus. During our discussion at our staff meeting this last Tuesday, I asked, hey, what are the obstacles to that kind of worshiping of Jesus? Here are some of the things that our staff said. Self, just self, myself gets in the way. Self-sufficiency, I think I can do it without him. Distraction. Just other things are in my face and I don't see the surpassing value of Jesus. Wounds with the church, broken encounters. How about this, just plain old fear. We're afraid that if we give it all to Jesus, we'll be left empty-handed and all alone. And he will just take the offer and run, and we don't want to be disappointed. I love what John Piper said. He said, it is a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of Jesus match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. And it is not beautiful, but suicidal when they don't. Kathy gave me that quote. She had another one too, so I'll, it's a twofer from Kathy today. Louis Prontnicki, fantastic name. Why she was reading him, I have no idea. But Louis Prontnicki said this Jesus has a lot of strange things in his treasury or his hall of faith. He has widow's pennies, cups of cold water, and broken alabaster jars. Does he have anything of yours? How are you responding to his glory and grace? As we close this chapter, we get two verses that tell us about Judas Iscariot 
striking a deal. Now, many people speculate from verses 10 and 11 why it is, what was the motive of Judas. Perhaps it was his feelings were hurt. Perhaps he wanted to force Jesus' hand. Maybe he was after uh, money. Matthew 26, 15 tells us that it was clear that Jesus bargained over the life of Jesus. He haggled with them. He said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? He's bargaining with them. So certainly part of it was just pure greed. Whatever Judas's motive was, it was his motive. God used the wicked work of a willing Satan who used a willing Judas. God ordained that these things happened, but he did not prompt Judas to sin. It was all Judas's heart. It was his valuation of Jesus. This last week, as we talked through the, this passage at our staff meeting, Becky Stevens made a brilliant observation. She said this, I always think about Judas when it comes to serving God. Judas was serving in ministry and was around the work of Jesus. He did the activities. He was doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. The difference was he wanted something from Jesus, money or position or political power. You see, for, for Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. Jesus himself was not the thing that Judas loved. Jesus was a way for Judas to get the thing that he loved in life. Maybe it was money, maybe it was position, maybe it was political power. But Jesus wasn't the thing he wanted. Jesus was the way to get what he wanted. Perhaps Judas saw an opportunity to be a part of a movement or gain a little extra coin for his pocket, but the bottom line is this. Jesus was not the treasure to Judas. Something else was. And there's an irony in the passage in that Judas was the one who told Jesus that this was a waste, and that Greek word waste is the same Greek word that Jesus employs when he calls Judas the son of perdition, the son of waste. Judas thought the worship of Mary was a waste. Jesus said that Judas was the son of waste. And Jesus was right. Jesus was betrayed for only 30 pieces of silver. The value was approximately four months of wages. He sold Jesus out for a third of the price of the bottle that was poured out in worship. That shows what he thought Jesus was worth. Judas had received his reward, felt so bad about it, he tried to give it back. He ended up casting it on the floor of the temple. But Mary gave all and never went back. Judas got his reward in, in money and, and left a legacy of shame and guilt and ultimately, ultimately ended in his suicide. Mary gave her earthly reward and gained an eternal reward and a legacy that sets the bar for what true worship looks like with reckless abandon. I love what Kathy said. It was not an act dominated by practicality. It was simply done to and for Jesus. For Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. For Mary... Jesus was 
the end. For Judas, money was the great treasure. For Mary, Jesus was the greatest treasure of all. Some saw Jesus as a threat to their kingdom. If he's in power, what will it cost us? Some saw Jesus as a means to an end, a way to get what they want. Mary saw Jesus as worthy of it all. Which one are you? Where are you at today? As the band comes up to close our time in worship, I just want you to reflect on that. What is the worth of Jesus to you? See, here's the truth. We are all already living as worshipers. We, we worship the band that we love and extol how magnificent that music is or that person is. We, we worship our favorite brands and paint them on our bodies and have them on our shoes and on our t-shirts. We worship our favorite shows and restaurants and talk about them everywhere that we go. The most pressing question for all of us is, since I am worshiping all the time and always praising something, what is being most praised in my life? Listen, here's the secret. Those that share in Jesus' presence through worship also share Jesus' fragrance. Wherever Mary went, you knew that she had been with Jesus because she smelled just like him. Where's your heart in worship today? Would you pray with me? Father, be glorified as we come to you again. For truly, Lord, you are worthy. Thank you for this reminder of the surpassing value of who you are, the extravagant value of who you are. Be glorified now in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.